It is uh, great to be back with you again. Um, if, if you're a guest, we're in this ministry is in uh, the midst of a series on the book of 1 Timothy. And so take those Bibles out that you have. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Love being with you. Love being with you a couple weeks ago. Great to be back today. Matt is out of town at a conference down in San Diego, man, which is good for him, right? Good for you. Good for you, Matt. Um, so it's, uh, it's good to be back and be able to open up God's Word with you. And so we've got a lot of work to do as per usual. And so what I want to do is I want to read the first five verses of chapter 4. It's a, it's a strange, funky, confusing, helpful, beautiful, perplexing text. So let's read it. Then I'll pray. Then we'll start walking through it together. Now, Paul writes to this young pastor named Timothy, now... The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, uh, my, my prayer as we enter this gathering time is that your word would do exactly what your word says it will do, that it will that it will go to, to dark places, places that need to be divided in our, our joints and our marrow, places that we're sometimes too scared to go to. We pray that this would be a time that is profitable, profitable not only for teaching, but for correction and training so that we as men and women of faith would be thoroughly complete, equipped uh, for the works, the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. I, I pray if there are people here today um, that don't know you, that by the proclamation of your word, they would come to faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And so I pray for new, new salvation stories as the result, even out of a text like this, as we go to God and, and, and taste and see that you, God, are good. And so I pray for a great a great few minutes of ministry uh, for, for the glory of your name and for our good. And I pray for these things in the beautiful, sweet name of Jesus. Amen. If you were here last week, you may remember that one of the verses that you looked at in chapter 3 was verse 15. And just notice it if you have your Bibles open where Paul writes there that the church is to be the pillar and the buttress or the foundation of truth. That's her role, in part at least, that the church is not only to be a place that is built on the truth, but she is to be a place where the truth is proclaimed and, and the truth is defended. Uh, but what we also know about the church is that it will be a place where truth comes under attack. That's what today's text is all about. Today's text is all about those who twist the truth and seek to deceive those who listen to them. Here's what I want to do with that in mind this morning with you. I'm going to have you notice out of our five verses the following from them. The first, I'm going to, I'm going to show you, I'm going to take you to the deceivers. Who are they? Who is this group of people seeking to twist the truth? Secondly, we're going to look at their deception. In other words, what's their message? 
And then thirdly, and very briefly on the back end, we're going to look at their defeat, meaning how do we counter their attack? What do we need to know? However, before we look at any of that, what I want you to notice is the tragic way that our text begins. Just look at verse 1. It is tragic. Paul writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. That's tragic. And it's tragic because, or doubly tragic, because it becomes personal for some of us. Is that not right? We know friends and family who at one time were walking with Jesus, loving Jesus, serving Jesus, couldn't get enough of Jesus, but have since departed departed the faith. That's heartbreaking. And that's how our text begins. But what it isn't is surprising. At least it shouldn't be. For the Spirit expressly says it will take place. When? Meaning, when did the Spirit expressly say that? Well, we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. We don't know what Paul has in mind when he talks about the Spirit plainly or expressly expressly saying this. We don't know if he has in mind some texts from uh, what we would call the Old Testament, his scriptures. We don't know if he has in mind perhaps a personal word that was spoken to him that he had shared with the church. We, We do know that there are times where Paul brings this up in other places. For example, in Acts 20, you can read this on the screen behind me, Paul warns the elders, the same elders, or at least the same church, perhaps elders that had eldered before in this church, church in Ephesus, he warns them in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, here it is, speaking twisted things, twisting the truth. To what end? Drawing away the disciples after them. So maybe he's referring to to that. Jesus himself said in what is known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, but in Matthew 24, 11 specifically, that false prophets would arise and lead many astray. So we shouldn't be surprised. But that doesn't remove the grief, does it? But, But the question still remains. Why do they depart? Why do one-time lovers of Jesus depart from the faith? Well, Paul answers in the second part of verse 1. They depart from the faith, here's our answer, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Who does that? I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant, but who does that? Who at one time was walking with Jesus, but no longer walks with Jesus, and now knowingly devotes themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons? Who does that? It sounds kind of absurd, doesn't it? Like maybe Paul is exaggerating it just a touch. But what if, what if he isn't? And what if they don't do it knowingly? Then why? That leads to what I want you to notice first, coming out of these 
five verses. Here's the first thing I want you to make sure that you get. We're going to look at the deceivers. Let's notice them. There are three of them in our text, two of them that are spoken of there, and and one that doesn't show up in our text, but he's all over it. That one is Satan himself. The first deceiver is Satan himself. He's not named in our text, but he's all over our text. He is without peer in his deception work. He is enemy number one. He, He hates us. And he seeks to destroy us by any means possible. That he's a deceiver is recorded several times in the New Testament text. One of the more well-known is uh, something that shows up in Revelation 12, 12 verse 9. We read there, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. More on his angels in just a second. He is a deceiver of the world. He is a liar too. Jesus himself states as much in John 8, 44, when speaking to his opponents and his enemies, the Pharisees specifically saying, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. So there he is. Satan is a liar and a deceiver and a hater of truth. Why? For it's truth that sets us free. And the last thing he wants is our freedom. He wants us in bondage. So he hates it. And he works against it, but he doesn't work alone. He can't, in fact. As a created being, he is limited in, in, in size and scope, and therefore he has deputized those angels that fell down to the earth with them that we just read, or with him that we read about in Revelation 12, which is the second group of deceivers that we're looking at, that we need to note. And they do show up in our text. Paul describes them in verse 1 as, and just note it, deceitful spirits. And teachings of of demons. They take their cues from their leader. And so what do we have so far? We have Satan, number one. We have his minions, number two. And yet, we, we haven't answered why anyone would devote themselves to them. Why would a one-time follower of Jesus do that? Well, the answer is given at least in part with the first word that shows up in verse 2. Please note it. It's the word through. Satan, through deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, is working through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And this is our third group of deceivers. This doesn't remove the tragedy, but it does remove the confusion. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to people who are teaching a message that I think we can can assume sounds pretty good, man. Even Christian-like, but is in reality demonic. A, A few things to note about this third group. First, they are referred to as insincere or hypocritical liars, meaning they, they present themselves as one thing, 
but are something else entirely. They look the part. They sound the part. In fact, they, they may look the part and sound the part better than we look the part and sound the part, but they're just playing a part. They're like an actor on a stage. That's the first thing that we need to note about them. Second, their consciences have been seared. They've been cauterized. They've been burned down, um, calloused. They, they lack sensitivity. They lack sensitivity to right and wrong, and therefore, they either don't know what they're teaching is wrong, or they don't care. Because the money's too good. And the crowds are too big. And they're moving lots of product. And when you add some good tunes to that mix, maybe some lion signs and wonders... You got a big ministry, man. That's that's tough to say no to and turn back from. A, a third thing to note about this group. They exist in the church. They aren't they aren't out there somewhere, but they are inside. Their audience is those in the faith. How can, how can that be though? Well, that question leads to the second thing that we need to notice coming out of that, our text, and that is their, their deception. We have the deceivers working through this group, so let's look at their deception, which comes primarily, not only, but primarily through the content of their message. I, I say not, not only because I've already talked about how they sound, how they look, Fruit, meaning crowds, perhaps people following them, but primarily it comes through the content of their message. We get a flyover, and this is where this text gets kind of funky. We get a flyover of their message in verse three. Listen to their message. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, meaning various foods. That's their message. And people depart the faith for that? That's their message. What do we do with this? Well, the mention of marriage, um, it's important to note, probably isn't a reference to marriage in general, but sex specifically. So what they are forbidding is sex and various foods, which, if we were honest are the two biggest vices today. I mean, we've got channels called food, right? It's like it's a channel dedicated to food. And we watch them. We love them, right? Christmas baking challenge, and we're all over it, man. Like, we love that stuff. And what we also have is billions of portals dedicated to sex. Just a click away. I mean, if there's a Mount Rushmore of vices, these two would be on it. And I don't think you'd probably need to add another two. This is it. This is what we talk about, think about every single day. And the teaching of demons is forbidding them. Again, how do we make sense of this? Well, one writes, and I, I like what he writes because it adds some insight, helps us with this. I'll quote him. Evidently, the teachings of demons was that physical appetite for sex and physical appetite for food was defective. 
They are inferior to a kind of asceticism, asceticism, big word that just simply means a, a severe treatment of the body. They are inferior to a kind of asceticism that sees in the physical world not God's ideal for us but something second class, something for the weak who don't have the wherewithal to, to renounce sex and certain foods. This was not just a deceitful spirit, but an actual teaching in the church that comes, Paul said, from hell. It was demonic. It's helpful. But even with that insight, let me ask you a question. Just think. Just big community group here. What... What remains perplexing about the message? I mean, it sounds strange. You go, I don't agree with it. But what's perplexing about it? What's perplexing about it, at least to me, is it doesn't sound like the teaching of demons. You know what I mean? The teaching of demons sounds like have sex wherever, whenever, however, whoever. And food, eat. Lots. Stuff yourself. Right? Eat food while you're having sex. That sounds like the teaching. You can't believe I said that. That's okay. That sounds like the teachings of demons, does it not? I mean, gluttony is a sin, right? It's one of the top seven. Gluttony is a sin. So why why would a demon keep you from eating? After all, wasn't it Satan himself who said to Eve, take and eat? And now we're led to believe that he's calling for the opposite. Don't have sex and don't eat certain foods doesn't sound like Satan. It sounds like your mom. <laughs> right? Didn't we grow up like that? All of us don't have sex. Put the ding-dongs down. Right? That's... Just me? I, that's, this doesn't sound like Satan. That's what's perplexing about the message. So why? Why then is this the teachings of demons? And we must consider why for nothing less than our faith stands in the balance. So I'm going to answer the question this way by, by saying that it's the teachings of demons because it takes us back. It leads us away. And it alienates us from. It takes us back to the garden. It, it leads us away from worship. And it alienates us from the body. So let's take them one at a time. First, it takes us back to the garden and Genesis 3 specifically. If, if you're not familiar with Genesis 3, let me bring you up to speed and remind the rest of you of that original temptation of Satan that is recorded Recorded there, it began with a question. Do you remember the question? Satan comes to Eve and he asks Eve, Did God really say to you, Eve, that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Which wasn't even close to what God said. Eve, to her credit, at this point responds by saying, No, we can eat of any tree in the garden except this one. And if we eat from this tree, we will surely die. Satan replies in Genesis 3, verse 5, you won't die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will, hear this, you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. What is the deceiver doing? What is he suggesting? God's holding out on you. God's being tight-fisted with you. I mean, holding out on you, being tight-fisted with you, just think about those considerations. Consider those two things in light of who he is in 2019. Same message. God's withholding. He's holding out on you. He's being tight-fisted. There's something more that could be yours, but he doesn't want you to experience it. But Eve, it's only a bite away. In other words, Satan is calling into question the goodness of God and insinuating that Eve may know better even than God himself. And the evil subtlety of this is that there is a, there's packed into this hints of truth. Would Eve, Adam and Eve's eyes be opened? Yeah, they would see their nakedness. Would they know good and evil? Yeah, experientially. Would they become like God? Yeah. They chose to be supreme in their life. Fast forward to our text and the tactic remains the same. Just notice, put your eyes please back in in verse 3 specifically. Paul writes in verse 3 that these teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created. In verse 4, Paul writes that everything, which certainly includes marriage and food, created by God is good. Which takes us back to Genesis again, one more time, but this time to Genesis 1, where God looked at his finished creation and took pleasure in it and declared it very good. But, come on, did God really say that? Did God really say that it was all very good? And when Jesus declared all foods permissible, did he really mean it? I mean, we've come a long way, haven't we? We've evolved. Times are different now. Maybe he's holding out on you now. Maybe he can't be trusted. Maybe you know better. Maybe you could, I could experience some things we aren't experiencing now if we just abstained. Do you hear the similarities? Do you see why this takes us back to the garden? See, here's the truth about Satan. If Satan can get you to move away from God, doubt God, have you become your own God by having you take and eat, great. He's great with that. But if he can achieve the same ends by having you not take and eat, great too. It's the ends he has in mind after all. That's our deceiver. By any means possible. But not only does their deception take us back to the garden, but secondly, it leads us away 
from worship specifically. Again, just here's why that is. Just notice one more time in verse 3. Paul says that God created sex and food to be received with thanksgiving. In verse 4, he adds, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He then writes in verse 5, kind of a confusing verse. In verse 5, he writes, it, meaning everything, is made holy, set apart, sanctified by the word of God and prayer, meaning God declared it good, and we thank him for it. Just a different way of packaging what he said earlier. So what does this mean? When you take it all together, it means that the things God created and declared good lead to opportunities of thanksgiving and worship. And therefore, when forbidden, we are led away from those opportunities. We, one of the sad things today... Um, is I don't think in the church we have a proper theology around creation, created things. Our, our world is um, all over the place in this. We have people who worship creation, but all too often in the church, we don't have a proper understanding, again, theology, meaning we're looking through the proper lenses of how we are to view it. So much so that I've heard people in the church say, who cares about creation? It's going to get burned up in the end, so do whatever you want with it. We aren't to worship it, but we are to steward it. We need a proper understanding of it. So this is why this is very important in addition to just leading us away. So let's walk through it. A question, just for clarity's sake, coming out of my previous point about if we take these things away, we're led away from worship. Just for clarity's sake, is eating food and having sex worship? The answer is no. Not in and of themselves, but here's why this is so important. They do provide portals for worship. If, important ifs, if, number one, they are received by people who believe and know the truth. That's verse three, meaning they're people of faith. Why is that important? Because without faith, we can't please God. So if those things, created things, are received by people who believe and know the truth, that's the first. And number two, received with thanksgiving, they become opportunities for worship. So eating a sandwich can simply be eating a sandwich. But if received in faith, with thanksgiving to the God who gave us bread, like bread, bread. You know what I mean? Bread. Like when you're at the keg and they bring you the bread. Oh man, it's so good. And you're like, I, I'll have one piece. And then it's like two, then more loaves, right? Steak comes, just bring me more bread. Bread. We love bread. And pastrami, the God who gave us pastrami. You go, God didn't give us pastrami. He gave us the ability to, to make pastrami. It's great. And hot mustard and sauerkraut. If you receive that sandwich in faith with thanksgiving, then every bite can be a shout out to God. And you think I'm kidding. Having sex with your spouse can simply be having sex with your spouse. 
But if entered with faith and thankfulness to the God who created the act of lovemaking, then it can become a 2019 version of the Song of Songs. Amen? Amen. Here, here. Exactly. We get uncomfortable with this. People who know the creator of everything good get uncomfortable with this. It's crazy. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 10, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In a verse that you will look at um, in the new year, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, pride-filled, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set their hopes on God who, and just notice it, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Our God, who takes pleasure in his creation, again, he called it very good, seems to take added pleasure when those he created take pleasure in what he created. Doesn't that make sense? He is our father after all. And and what father doesn't take pleasure in his kids enjoying something that he has given them? What kind of father would that be? Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine. So women, when you go to the bathroom, man, you spend an hour in front of the mirror and you come out, your face just glowing. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. Oil to make your, whatever it is that you put on. It's so great. It's so great. And bread that sustains their hearts. That's our God. Enjoy it. There's another reason why we should enjoy and not, not abstain. And, and that reason is because that the, cre- the creation of God tells us what the creator is like. Meaning, the creation around us doesn't simply tell us there is a creator. It it tells us what the, the creator is like, what he's like. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1.20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. How sweet is our God? Take a spoonful of honey and taste and see. How big is our God? Stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and see for yourself. 
How protective is our God? Just watch a a lion with her cubs. How beautiful is our God? Have you ever gazed at the petals of a rose? How majestic is our God? Take in a symphony and hear for yourself. How, How powerful is our God? Just listen to the thunder and see the lightning. And how humbly and graciously loving is our God? Look at the babe in the manger. Look at at the man upon the cross. Creator becoming creation and dying for it. Is he more than those things? Is he more than a rose and honey in the Grand Canyon? Of course, he's creator after all, but, but each of those gives us a glimpse, gives us a taste of what he's like, and they lead to opportunities of worship. A couple summers ago, my family and I, we drove down and through the Grand Canyon, and we got, late, late, got to the area late at night. We stayed at a flea bag hotel. We got up early in the morning and we drove to where you could take in the Grand Canyon. You park your car and you don't see anything. It's kind of covered, but you make your way down to, to the viewing station and all of a sudden you walk out and there, it's right in front of you. And you just, my goodness, my goodness. And we did, all, we did all the things that tourists should do when they go to the Grand, you know, all the tour, pictures, throwing rocks in the Grand Canyon, you know, that kind of stuff when you shouldn't. Because if everybody did that, they tell you it would fill up. It would be a bummer. So we took it all in. But before we left, before we left, I just said to, to my two boys and my wife, I said, we, we need to pray. We need to pray. And so we just stopped and, and prayed and worshiped and just said, God, you are so big. Like, you are so big. Don't let anybody take those opportunities from you. It's the teachings of demons. And it takes you away from a good God who has given those things to you and to me to enjoy. Now, before moving on, are there possible abuses in this? Certainly. If we can find a way to abuse these types of things, we abuse them. One of the abuses that you hear, and it seems foolish even to say out loud, but some people will say, well, if all I have to do is thank God for things, then I'll just thank God for it, and I will do whatever I want to do. And I'm covered because I'm thanking God for it. That's not what this means. See, here's the fact of the matter. God has placed you in the garden, a garden called Tri-City. That Port Coquitlam, Port Moody, Coquitlam. Maple Ridge over there, right? He's pointing, here's your garden. And this is what he says to us today. Here are some trees you can eat from. Enjoy it. Pick, eat to your heart's content. These trees, doesn't matter how much you thank me for them. If you eat from them, you're outside of what I have for you. With the question, will you trust me? Do you believe I'm good? So yeah, we can abuse it that way. There's another question tied to this. Is abstaining from things bad? Just out and out bad? The answer to that is no. We are called to abstain at times from things. 
We're called to fast. We feast at times, we fast at times. You may choose not to eat certain foods for a wide variety of reasons. You want to look good in a bathing suit. So get rid of carbs. Carbs out of my life, right? Or some things are just not healthy for you or for conscience reasons, for witness reasons. There's a lot of reasons to abstain. In fact, you may choose not to get married or you may want to get married, but perhaps that never happens. Great too. Nothing wrong with that. Paul, in fact, states in 1 Corinthians 7 that, you know what? Follow my lead and perhaps no, don't get married so you can really serve Christ and you're not distracted with spouse stuff. So great. So what's the difference? Motive. That's the difference. If you're choosing to abstain because you think it'll make you super spiritual, reach a a different level of spirituality, experiencing things that, that, that demand this because God is holding back, and if you don't do it, you'll never taste it, or you're trying to abstain because you think you owe something to God and you've got to pay him back, that's a wrong motive. It's all about motive. So their deception takes us back to the garden. It moves us away or leads us away from worship. And third, it alienates us from It alienates us from the body. In a text that mirrors ours, and it's a longer one, I'll put it on the screen as well, Paul writes this in Colossians 2. And we'll begin to wrap up with this. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So they're foreshadowings. We know what a shadow is. Here's my shadow on the floor. That's not me. That tells you I'm coming. But here I am. It'd be weird if you got really fascinated while I'm standing here with the shadow. Like, don't go to that. The person's here. These are shadows of Christ. Christ came. Don't go to that. Don't get enamored with that. That's the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus is here. Don't go back to priests and angels and the like. You got Jesus. He's come. And in these last days, God speaks to us through Jesus. So let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. We've seen that before. And worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason in his sensuous mind. So somebody comes with new teachings, they talk about visions, they go on and on and on in great detail, pride-filled, they've received something that you haven't, don't be duped. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts, And teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here is why I take you here. One of the overarching dangers of teachings like this is that it draws people inward and self-focused, and it alienates them in their pride 
from others. Either because they believe they've reached a place of, of dedication and insight that you haven't or can't. Or it alienates them because others pe- be, become defeated because they don't feel like they can do the same thing. Either way, alienation happens and the body of Christ suffers. I remind you, we come to God personally, but we grow in community. And anything that takes us away from community is the teachings of demons. It will cause people to depart from the faith. Because you and I, the best you and I are, is a nose or an ear and eye. We cannot experience the things God has for us by ourselves. Because we're just apart. We need each other. So to sum up, any teaching that calls into question, number one, the goodness of God, and insists that we abstain from what God has declared good, and thus removes opportunities for worship, and draws us inward and secluded and alienates us from others is the teaching of demons. And tragically, it will cause some to depart from the faith. That's these five verses. My time is done, but we're not quite finished. We've looked at the deceivers. We've looked at their deception. Let me close by considering very, very, very briefly their defeat. How do we ensure that we aren't of of one of those who departs from the faith? How do we ensure that this doesn't happen? And how do we help others? Well, like I said, I'll answer in short today, knowing that a longer uh, answer will come in the new year. I'm going to borrow from Peter one more text on on the screen. He writes, You therefore, beloved Tri-City, beloved Tri-City, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So there's way number one, take care, guard. You're you're not uninformed now. Take care, guard. Know that this this is out there. Secondly, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is, grow. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Lord and Savior, Jesus, the one who's finished it. Grow in that knowledge. And then lastly, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. There it is. There's number three, glorify. Guard, grow, glorify. Take care, grow in knowledge, and keep worshiping. Draw close. Take your eyes off yourself. Put them to Jesus. Seek the things that are above. That's how. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. So, Father, we do pray as we now respond to this. Um, my prayer simply is that what you call us from, what you call us to, that we would, we would be obedient in that, that we would not be mere hearers but doers of the word. You've given us your word now, so I pray that we would do your word to the glory of your name. And, and, and our betterment in, in, in Christ's likeness and our increase in, in faithfulness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.